I have called up in all my years of sorcery, no ominous and gibbous. And the Hello, and welcome to The Double Shadow, a podcast exploring the weird fiction of 20th century writer Clark Ashton Smith. I'm Tim. I'm Phil. And I'm Ruth. And this week, we'll be covering The Holiness of Azedarach. By the ram with a thousand ewes. By the tail of Dagon and the horns of Derseto, said Azedarach, as he fingered the tiny, pot-bellied vial of vermilion liquid on the table before him. Something will have to be done with that pestilential brother Ambrose. I have now learned that he was sent to Zim by the Archbishop of Averone for no other purpose than to gather proof of my subterraneous connection with Azazel and the Old Ones. He has spied upon my evocations in the vault. He has heard the hidden formulae and beheld the veritable manifestation of Lilith and even of Yag-Sotat and Sodagwai, those demons who are more ancient than the world. And this very morning, an hour agone, he has mounted his white ass for the return journey to Vion. There are two ways, or in a sense, there is one way, in which I can avoid the bother and inconvenience of a trial for sorcery. The contents of this vial must be administered to Ambrose before he has reached journey's end, or failing this, I myself shall be compelled to make use of a similar medicament. So that's the opening line to the holiness of a Zedirac. Who was that yelling? Oh, that was the Zedirac. Oh. <laughs> it was, in fact, the holiness of a Zedirac yelling. Before we talk about the story, we should talk about our fancy forums, huh? It's true. We have forums now. They're at thedoubleshadow.com slash forums. You can sign up there. I'm approving all of the registrations so that that way the spam bots don't get through. So it may take you... Hopefully less than a day to get approved, but we'd love to hear your thoughts. You can also leave thoughts in our blog comments, but we've had some really awesome discussions, people sharing more information about the stories and such on the forums. So be sure to check those out. Totally. So the story was written in the spring of 1931, but not published um, until November uh, of 1933. Uh, it was published in Weird Tales alongside Tales by Poe, which I guess much be, must be a reprint. Yeah. E, uh, e. Hoffman Price, C.L. Moore, and others. Like the last story we covered, this story was actually published before Colossus of Yaloran. So once again, as a warning to people writing research papers everywhere, don't <laughs> take your information from Wikipedia. It's not accurate. The world is not that way. So this story was published in Weird Tales. It is interesting, Tim. I'm sure you're referring to, <laughs> to many things that we'll talk about later, but I, uh, I find it notable that a publication so reviled for its heavy editorial hand did right. not take a bigger machete to this story. <laughs> so Ruth and Phil, Ruth visited Rhode Island and you guys went to the Hay Library archives? Yes, at Brown. Why did you guys go there? Well, that's where the H.P. Lovecraft collection is, but we weren't actually there for Lovecraft stuff because Clark Ashton Smith used to send Lovecraft drafts of his various stories. And the Hay has copies of all of these drafts. And so we went up and we spent some time, to two days, comparing original drafts to the finished work. Some of this material is already available on the Eldritch Dark and some of it isn't, depending on the degree of uh, difference between them. So, for example, we learned that this story was originally titled The Satanic Prelate. Which is a pretty cool title. You guys got to actually handle and look at some of the stuff Smith actually wrote on and sent over to Lovecraft, right? No. no? <laughs> See, the Lovecraft collection there is so popular that they've made what are called, um, they've made use copies. So everything is a copy, which is good because then you don't have to feel quite as guilty about like getting your finger oil on it. But it's, it's bad though because a lot of it is handwritten. So yeah. a copy of a, of a copy of like, Bad handwriting makes bad handwriting even harder to read. Luckily, Smith, well, who knows how many handwritten drafts he did, but I mean, it was about, 
what would you say, Ruth? About fifty-fifty. Yeah, fifty-fifty. Maybe slightly weighted towards the towards typewritten drafts, which was kind of interesting. So there are a lot of like interesting, just sort of minor changes between drafts. Like it's interesting to wonder when. And I think I made a note, although I don't have it up in front of me, when Clark Ashton Smith chose to cross a word out and replace it with sepulchral. Which I just think is funny because clearly it's a word that he really enjoyed. And I like, I like seeing him, like, you can see the process by which he, like, crossed out another adjective and was like, you know what? I'm just going to go with what I know. And this is clearly sepulchral. So we're just going to let it be that. So that was pretty fun. Yeah, I got some good notes on uh, some of his odd word choices that I think we'll be using in the stories down the road just to say, hey, this is what he was thinking of. And it actually does make a difference here. Something like that, as well as the dramatic endings, like the satyr is completely different. Oh, really? But Azadarak yeah. is fairly much, fairly the same. Now, was it hard to get in? No, they were very nice. As many archivists are, they were a little reticent at first because you never know what the person is going to do when they come in. But once we sat down and behaved ourselves, uh, they became very nice and friendly. So thank you, Brown. Thank you, Hay Library. Thank you, Reader Services at Hay Library. We had a really, really good time, and we're both looking forward to going back. We did. I, uh, there was a dude, I'm going to call him a cool dude, there who was reading. They have a Weird Tales collection there, too. Uh, oh, yeah. He was sitting next to us reading from uh, Weird Tales books. He's a cool dude. <laughs> <laughs> I point, the point about the cool dude is that, they, that, that the Brown Library, I wish that they had more of this stuff, but they clearly, they don't just have Lovecraft stuff, they have Clark Ashton Smith stuff, and they have, it looks, seems like a mass, a kind of mishmash of Weird Tales influenced stuff, including a collection of the actual magazines. And I was jealous of our friend Cool Dude because he got to handle, it's not copies of old Weird Tales, he had like the actual... actual. Yeah, the actual copy, the actual issue. I was sitting there going, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, don't tear anything. <laughs> well, I mean, that, that I don't know if you, how close you saw it, but that, that weird tale was beat up. Like, it was, it was falling apart. But still, I was jealous. It was really cool. If you have any thoughts or feelings about their trip to the Hay Library at Brown, join the forums. Start talking. Ask them questions. Talk about this, the holiness of Zedrak. After listening to this podcast and hopefully reading Join the story. Us. Join us, won't you? Here Join us in conversation. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, we opened with Azedarak yelling, who is he talking to? And what is he talking about? He's talking to, uh, Ruth, help me on the pronunciation of his, um, his helper's name. Jahan. Jahan Movaswav. So he's talking to, um, he has like a, like a little Disney sub-villain named Jahan, and they are plotting to stop a monk who has stolen one of Zedarak's books. Now, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, do we understand just who Zedarak is in this first section, or does that not get covered until later? No, we do. Right after his tirade, the story calls him the uh, the Bishop of, of Zyme. Right. So, so what we understand from this opening is that a sorcerer Perhaps a necromancer um, is a bishop in this city of Zaim in, um, in Averone, and that uh, what would appear to be some kind of heroic monk has stolen uh, the Book of Ibon from Zedarak. And this has uh, upset him for many reasons. Do you want, to, when you want to talk about what can be found in the Book of Ibon? Lots and lots of magic. It contains the oldest incantations and the secret man-forgotten lore of Yog Sotot and Sodogwai. Sodogwai. Uh, but I think this, like this is an interesting passage to me in the history of Averon because I don't think we've encountered a story yet, right, that that uses many of these names. Like No, no you're right. Yog Sotot, we don't think we've heard before. Right. Has mm-hmm. has Sithagwa appeared in an Averon story? I don't think Not so. Not yet. Mm-mm. Not that no. I've noticed, no. Um and Book of Ibon, of course, is a book that would get repurposed by Lovecraft and I think others mm-hmm. that appear throughout the mythos. And Ivan himself is a character that we're gonna meet in uh, once we get to the Hyperborea stories. And a lot of this this is one of the, the difficulties with how we've chosen to do these stories is that I think that the stories featuring Ibon and uh, Sathagwa were actually written prior to Holy Zedarak. So uh, at the time of reading this, the reader would already be aware of some of these things, but because of the way we've done it, we're a little bit behind the game. But that's okay, because it's still interesting how he is weaving um, 
like weaving his own mythology uh, and making references, also Dagon, uh, making mm-hmm. references to um, to HBL stuff. Right, and also the horns of Dersetto. Dersetto is a goddess that Howard, Robert E. Howard uses in Conan. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah. Uh, she is a, a goddess of pleasure, and her cult is licentious and hedonistic. Interesting. That is going to play a little bit into the next story we uh, cover. Oh, yeah. This is a little bit of a sidebar, but I'm really curious as to what the relationship between um, Howard and Smith was. I'd assume that it was similar to the, the relationship between Smith and Lovecraft, but on Eldritch Dark, they have the letter that Smith, I think, wrote to Lovecraft about Robert E. Howard's death, and he mm-hmm. writes about him in a way that is not terribly familiar, which makes me think that they, they may not have been, if they were direct correspondents, they may not have been um, very lively direct correspondents. Right. It, it goes to your point, Tim, that H.P. Lovecraft was the internet, and not everybody <laughs> he on the internet is equally connected. You know? yeah. he, he was the internet of his time. He brought everyone together and everything was free. And also rape. <laughs> right. Oh, jeez. <laughs> yeah, he was a living YouTube comment. <laughs> so, moving oh, on. That is awesome. I want that on my tombstone. Okay, so he has this book, Our Evil um, Sorceress Bishop. Right. But he's and, smart. Yeah. He, he doesn't just He doesn't just put out his human flesh-bound right. copy of the Book of Ivan, just leave it lying around. He doesn't even lock it up, though. He rebinds it in uh, sheepskin. Or sheep's leather as a like a Christian missile, but unfortunately Ambrose has spied on him, so Ambrose knows that he's looking for something, and so Ambrose, you know, he searches long enough, and then he's able to find it. Right. Because he's not that careful of a sorcerer, despite all of his. Oh, I'm going to do this. It's like, yeah, but somebody can peep at a keyhole and see you. So. Right. My favorite thing about this earlier, this early section of the story is when Azedarak talks about why. He's mad, and he's mad because yes, he's like he's he's basically mad because he's been inconvenienced. Yes. like he has a great thing going on here. He's pretending to be a Christian. No one knows what's going on, and he's basically really comfortable. He actually doesn't even care, and we learn later we learn later that he doesn't even really care about getting the book back. He's mostly just doesn't want to be ousted from his cherry position. As like uh, as a, a hypocritical Christian bishop, yeah, and he even says that nobody will even be able to read the book because it's an ancient Hyperborean, but yeah. they'll know it's like an evil book because of the illustrations and the uh, the what is it the dragon's blood illuminations. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so I, I my only other note on the section is just that he is a very talkative villain and yes. seems to be in the tradition of like hammy over talkative villains, which is. I think kind of works for this part of the story. I do think if we're going to get a little bit into critiques of the story at this point, this whole story is a little bit overwritten and it starts with Azedarak being overwritten. Yeah, uh, but it's also overwritten in the parts where it doesn't need to be overwritten and the stuff yes. that needs more is just bafflingly spare. But something that, to go back to your early point about how he's just kind of being inconvenienced here, he supposes eventually someone will figure out that he's a devil worshiper and he also says the chief difference between myself and many other ecclesiastics is that i serve the devil wittingly and of my own free will while they do the same in sanctimonious blindness which i think is really interesting because that's not the first kind of gnostic statement smith has slipped into his stories about how the god that that people at large worship is not is like the devil didn't Nathair accuses. Nathair talks yeah. about Ialdabaoth. Yeah, right. Accuses the priests of being whelps of Ialdabaoth. And I couldn't figure out from this one if uh, whether he thought that they were serving the devil by by being a part of this institution, or or, or you know by worshiping this particular deity, or whether he thought that they were serving the devil because even at this point, say they were already a corrupt group so he could be saying like well corruption everybody all of these people are corrupt i'm just i i admit to myself that i'm corrupt and serving the devil uh so then we cut to our hero i i have a larger point to make about heroism in the story so i'm gonna go ahead and call him our hero for now and he is traveling as fast as he can on this white ass that was sorry i can't say it without laughing right (laughs) he's traveling as fast as he can towards vion because he wants to report what he's discovered um, and he has the book of Ibon, and it's clutched under his robe, and the road around him is eer- eerily empty, and we have a great 
This is one of uh, another of Clark Ashton Smith's wonderful, eerily traveling through the woods of Averon moments, uh, which are always so much fun. And we learn that he was sent there specifically because there were rumors uh, coming from Zyme that that Azedarek was a bad fellow. Um, and the current Archbishop of Clement, I'm sorry, the current Archbishop of, of Vion named Clement uh, sent Ambrose because uh, I guess he knew he could trust him. They're related, right? They're like they're his nephew. Yeah, yeah. His Ambrose nephew, is yeah. his nephew. He's traveling through the the woods and he's super paranoid. He's seeing evil everywhere because he's he's got this this book of ancient evil clutched in his robe, and he knows that it's only a matter of time before Azedarak notices it's missing. So he's kind of constantly looking over his shoulder. And I think his world has just been turned upside down because as much as he believes, as much as he lives in Averone, as much as he believes that this sort of stuff exists, seeing an actual prelate consorting with Lilith and whatnot is very, would have to be very unsettling for him. And before we move on, I also wanted to point out that this is the last time that we saw Azedrak. This, this was it. That was Azedrak. Yeah, that's, the that's all we get of him. Yeah, it's true. I hadn't even thought about that. Ambrose's thoughts returned with fearful insistence to Azedarak, who appeared to him as a tall, prodigious antichrist, uprearing his sable vans and giant figure from out the flaming mire of Abaddon. Again he saw the vaults beneath the bishop's mansion, wherein he had peered one night on a scene of infernal terror and loneliness, had beheld the bishop swathed in the gorgeous, coiling fumes of unholy censers, then mingled in midair with the sulfurous and bituminous vapors of the pit, and through the vapors had seen the lasciviously swaying limbs the bellying and dissolving features of foul, enormous entities. Recalling them, again he trembled at the pre-Adamite lubriciousness of Lilith. Again he shuddered at the transgalactic horror of the demon Sadagwai, and the ultra-dimensional hideousness of that being known as yog Sothal to the sorcerers of Averon. I like this passage because it makes Azedarak, who seems a little bit hammy and almost comedic earlier, seem genuinely Powerful. devilish yeah 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 he's he's literally chatting it up with transgalactic entities <laughs> horrors yeah. and pre-adamite pre-adamite is an awesome uh descriptor i think also uh, i don't know if it's quite accurate because lilith i thought lilith well i'm trying to remember is lilith supposed to be created at the same time as adam and then eve yeah, later i also like that he that he um unlike lovecraft even in a um a, a scene like this like layers in just a hint of sex like yes. they're not just swaying limbs they're lasciviously swaying limbs you know which is you know he's a sexer clark ashton smith he's he uh it's what he does uh so after having this terrifying reverie about what he witnessed that led him to steal the book uh, a mysterious and strangely familiar rider suddenly passes him by on this previously empty road and ambrose is like wait i think i know that guy but then he can't quite place them. which is i i guess only only note because it's the beginning of one of the more strangely written occurrences in this story that we'll get to in a second ambrose he's totally freaking out he's traveling through the i don't think smith uses the uh werewolf haunted forest of Averone in this one i don't think he does. We, i have a werewolf checklist but i don't think i cross-referenced this one with yeah. it yeah I don't think there's a mention of werewolves. No werewolves? Let's see. No lip guru. No. He's traveling through the forest. He's freaked out. A minute more, and he saw the lights of the inn. Before their benign and golden radiance, the equivocal forest shadows that attended him seemed to halt and retire, and he gained the haven of the tavern courtyard with the feeling of one who has barely escaped from an army of goblin perils. I love that the perils were <laughs> goblin perils. That's just amazing. I, I totally get that. Yeah. I understand. Like you go out in the woods late at night and when you get to somewhere that's that's light, you suddenly are like, oh, thank God I've escaped mm -hmm. from the, I don't know what that was, but I've escaped. Yeah. Like the goblin chittering perils. shadows, the horrors. So he reaches this inn and he, he finally is able to take a, a deep breath. You know, he's with other people. He feels safe. He sees that in the tavern, there's this guy that, that passed him on the road that looked strangely familiar, but he really couldn't place him. Mm -hmm. Then the guy uh, says, 
hey, you're a Benedictine. I like Benedictines. Let's let's you know let's eat together. Let me buy you a drink. And Ambrose, he he seems to take too much comfort in the fact that the other people at the tavern seem to recognize this guy, and so he acts well, as somebody put it in the notes, like a moron. Right. That was me because he does act like he a does moron. act like a moron. This. Is, uh, Whatever, we'll see. I guess we can assess the story as a whole at the end. There are parts of this story that I love, but this whole sequence, where was Farnsworth on this one? Okay, but this guy with the beard and the friendliness, he introduces himself as the Sieur Desimo. Yeah, and then not only does he is he a bit suspicious, a bit over-friendly, but he says, you know what, I'm going to go select us some really good wine. I'm going to go pick it myself and make sure it gets poured myself on all of this stuff. And maybe it's me coming to it as a woman, but when a guy goes, says, I'm going to get you a drink, I'll go get it myself, and it's somebody you've never met before, you don't drink but, it. But Ruth, it's worse than that, because yeah. he sees that there's liquid in that yeah. goblet. In the goblet before he, before he pulls it. it. Yeah. I know! Even, like it's, he like sees it. Yeah, and then he... He sees that that the the wine has something else in it, and he he recognizes that this guy with the beard is Jehan Movisois. Movisois, evil knight. Yeah, he sees that he has Gilbert Godfrey's voice, like in Aladdin. He sees that this is the guy that that constantly pals around with a Zedrak. And what but does he, he still do? drinks it. But see, at that point, I feel like he, he doesn't feel like he, he doesn't think he's got a choice because he knows that that guy could just kill him. I mean, I look, guess so, I yeah. like to take I like to take a story on its its own. That's what I'm looking for. I don't know, set of rules or whatever. Right. But this scene really gives me a hard time because there are I just I just I can't like I can't justify it. I can't figure out why it's written this way. I can't figure out why he wasn't just drugged without knowing right. that he was going to be drugged. It just seems crazy right. to me. That would be the um, easiest thing in the world to do. The no. easiest thing in the world, and you still could have, uh, whatever, I, I don't need to be angry about it, right. but it, it's just, uh, it's a frustrating sequence because, as I'm sure we'll talk about at the end, I think the story has a lot of potential, but it, it really stumbles in this scene. Like, it takes a, like a full face plant stumble, I think. <laughs> For what is an interesting, like, it's an inter- what happens next is really fascinating. Ambrose hesitated. The cold, hypnotic eyes of his interlocutor were upon him, and he was powerless to refuse, in spite of all his apprehensions. Shuddering slightly, with a sense of some irresistible compulsion and feeling that he might drop dead from the virulent working of a sudden poison, he emptied his goblet. An instant more and he felt that his worst fears had been justified. The wine burned like the liquid flames of phlegeton in his throat and on his lips. It seemed to fill his veins with a hot, infernal quicksilver. Then, all at once, an unbearable cold had inundated his being. An icy whirlwind wrapped him round with coils of roaring air. The chair melted beneath him, and he was falling through endless glacial gulfs. The walls of the inn had flown like receding vapors. The lights went out like stars in the black mists of a marsh, and the face of the Sieur DMO faded with them on the swirling shadows even as a bubble breaks on the milling of midnight waters. So he drinks the so drink. He drinks the drink. I mean, it, it's it's tricky, this passage, because it's beautifully written, yeah. but at its base, his behavior, I think, can only be described as moronic. Yeah. Maybe Jehan knows magic. Well, yeah, we don't, I, I mean, there's nothing to support again. That. There's nothing that would have, in that case, would have had to compel him early. Yeah, I know. It, it, I mean, with with the sense of some irresistible compulsion, makes yeah. it feel as if he he may have been magicked. Um, right, and there is cold, hypnotic eyes. Mm-hmm. But but it still feels like the, the 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 writing is doing beautiful work to cover what could have been covered in a much simpler way. You know, yeah. Yeah, it's like true. he's he's working really hard in this passage to do something that is, to my mind, never going to read more than Ambrose saw that he was going to be poisoned and then drank the drink anyway. Right. He gets poisoned and, and he's dead now, right? Story over? Nope. The end? No, He's not dead. Tim, he's not dead. I don't what? know what story you read. What happened? This man is not dead. Hold on, I want to talk about this word phlegeton. Yeah. Because it's one of the other rivers of the Greek underworld. Like, it's more famous river Styx, but this one's on fire, and that's awesome. Fire. So Ambrose undergoes this crazy feeling and then he wakes up and he has 
I don't know why I wrote the notes these ways. He has a vague impression of what happened to him while he was unconscious. Uh, but he wakes up not in the inn. Uh, and he's not in a dungeon. He's not in a ZRX dungeon, like horrible dungeon of horrors. He is in a forest. And he is sitting on top of a large square block of roughly hewn granite. And around him are a bunch of men. I love this because they're just sort of like, okay. <laughs> it is. It's awesome. They're, they're, they, like, it, it's a very, like in a cartoon, it's a very comedic moment. It's not really written for comedy here, but it is a comedic moment where he stares at them and they stare at him. Right. And then, then he begins praying. And then hearing him pray, they start to like do this crazy prayer chant and they keep repeating this word Terranit over and over and over again. And I try tried to figure out what the devil Terranit is and where it came from, but uh, the internet was really not forthcoming. The closest I could come is that there is a, a Celtic god named uh, Terranus, who is a god or possibly goddess, the internet wasn't sure, uh, of lightning and thunder, which that may be the reference. It may not be. I, I don't know. I I used to know some how to like conjugate stuff in Latin, but uh, it doesn't take me far enough to know if Terranit is a different form of Terranus right. or Terranus. Anyway, so what happens? Well, they throw them down on the table, the, the stone of granite, and they pull out their knives, and they're all about to sacrifice him, when suddenly... Then, above the demoniac chanting, which had risen to a mad, malignant frenzy, he heard the sweet and imperious cry of a woman's voice. In the wild confusion of his terror, the words were strange and meaningless to him but plainly they were understood by his captors and were taken as an undeniable command. The stone knife was lowered sullenly, and Ambrose was permitted to resume a sitting posture on the flat slab. His rescuer was standing on the edge of the open glade in the wide-flung umbrage of an ancient pine. She came forward now, and the white-garmented beings fell back with evident respect before her. She was very tall, with a fearless and regal demeanor, and was gowned in a dark shimmering blue like the star-laden blue of nocturnal summer skies. Her hair was knotted in a long golden brown braid, heavy as the glistening coils of some eastern serpent. Her eyes were a strange amber, her lips vermilion touched with the coolness of woodland shadow, and her skin was of alabastrine fairness. Ambrose saw that she was beautiful, but she inspired him with the same awe that he would have felt before a queen together with something of the fear and consternation which a virtuous young monk would conceive in the perilous presence of an alluring succubus. And for having hair that's serpentine, I'm so excited that she's not a lamia. Yes. Because like, he could have gone with that. <laughs> it's true. I like, uh, I mean, I put this in our, our notes, I like that she totally uh, Kyle Reese's him, her, him from Terminator. She's like, right. come with me if you want to live, mm -hmm. uh, which I think is awesome. Um, but isn't she more like Obi-Wan Kenobi? Is she? Well, like she comes out and she's like all... Saves her from the sand people. And then the sand people... Oh, yeah, she's totally, yeah you're right. You're totally right. And then, sand people are easily startled. But yeah. no, they're not going to defy her. I love that they lower their knives sullenly. Like they're like, oh, right. <laughs> Taken. There's a lot that's awesome in this past. In in this, in like her description, I think again, Clark Ashton Smith, he likes the ladies. Yes. Uh and he knows how to describe them, I think, yeah. in very if not necessarily realistic terms, at least I would I would say like poetic terms, like romantically capital R romantically poetic terms, which is which is cool. Right. It's not like porny. He's not like in her breasts no. were No, she's striking. Right. Yeah. So Tim, who is this woman and what does she want? And what is she speaking? Yeah. Answer our questions, Tim. She is Moriamis. She's a sorceress, and she's speaking an ancient French that Ambrose just happens to know how to speak. And if you remember, we did um, a very short little interlude of two readings uh, from Lovecraft, a letter from Lovecraft to Clark Ashton Smith and a letter from Smith to Lovecraft. And they were actually concerned with the history of Averone and with this particular story and with the fact that she should have actually been speaking in Latin, not ancient French, given when the story was set. So uh, I guess Clark Ashton Smith fails this as a history paper. Yes. So she is Moriamis. She's an enchantress. And the Druids, those guys were Druids. 
they fear her magic because it's more sovereign and more excellent than theirs. I, that's my favorite phrase yeah. in this entire story. I love that she says her magic is more sovereign and more excellent. Uh-huh. I think about that phrase a lot, actually. I've been <laughs> like, I think I actually in my head uttered to myself about my dinner tonight of boiled pierogies. This is a more sovereign and more excellent dinner than I was expecting. <laughs> that's that's pretty incredible. She, well, she also says she's a good guy, in effect. She says, my magic is more sovereign and more excellent, and I use it not for the bale or bane of mankind, right. unlike, yes. the, unlike the druids. So, you know, good on her. Now we're going to get a bunch of emails about how the druids weren't actually evil. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Those druids were evil. I have nothing to back that up. Just in, well, they were gonna, uh, they were going to cut up our boy. They were going to cut well, up. They were, these, these particular druids. These particular were, druids definitely evil. These yeah. rogue druids. They use their magic that is not excellent, nor is it sovereign, mm-hmm. and they use it for bale and bane. Yes, although Ambrose so, probably deserved it. I don't know that for he just showing it. up. Yeah, for he's drinking, not a hero, but he's not like a for, oh, for, for drinking a, a drink that he knew was bad. From a guy he knew was bad. Tim, here's something. Here's a little advice for you. Don't blame the victim. <laughs> You're right. You're absolutely right. I apologize. Uh, so she helps him escape from the druids and leads him through the forest and, and they can communicate, which is, again, great that, that Ambrose speaks this form of archaic French. How helpful. <laughs> yeah, right? What a coincidence. I happen to speak this strange language. Latin would actually make more sense here. Yeah, it, really it would make would. more sense on multiple levels. So they have this great conversation. I, I love this whole section of the story for the same reason that I thought those letters you guys read back and forth were so interesting because yeah. I love this the way this story, for whatever reason, I'm mildly obsessed with the chronology of Averon, and this story does a great job of filling in that chronology or at least letting us know its contours, shall we say. So they have this conversation wherein Ambrose's situation uh, becomes clear. Um, she sort of says, you look like one of those funny Christians who started coming to Averon and are always getting murdered by druids, like you were just murdered. Um, and Ambrose, still not quite getting it, says, "Druids, I haven't, you know, I haven't heard of druids being around in centuries." And then it comes out that she's never heard of Zim or even Vion, but she does still confirm that they are in Averon. And the only name in this conversation that they both really recognize, aside from Averon, is Azedarak. Yep. Uh, and she's all, "What do you know about Azedarak?" And he sort of fills her in, tells her about Jahan and Azedarak. I hope you can explain what has happened. It is a fearsome and strange and ungodly thing to drink a draft of wine in a tavern at eventide and then find oneself in the heart of the forest by afternoon daylight among demons such as those from whom you succored me. Yea, it is even stranger than you dream. Tell me, Brother Ambrose, what was the year in which you entered the inn of Bonjouissance? Why, it was the year of our Lord 1175, of course. What other year could it be? The druids use a different chronology, and their notation would mean nothing to you. But according to that which the Christian missionaries would now introduce in Averone, the present year is A.D. 475. You have been sent back no less than 700 years into what the people of your era would regard as the past. The druid altar on which I found you lying is probably located on the future site of the inn of Bonjouissance. But how can such things be? How can a man go backward in time among years and people that have long turned to dust? That, mayhap, is a mystery for Azedarak to unriddle. However, the past and the future coexist with what we call the present and are merely the two segments of the circle of time. We see them and name them according to our own position in the circle. Tim, tell us what we just learned. We learned that Ambrose drank this drink and it made him go back in time. But I liked that Moriamas is dropping some like hardcore quantum theory here with the yeah, that's past, the thing future, that I think yeah, and present yeah, is really all. cool about this story. Like it's it has distinct and uh, I guess you might call them terminal weaknesses, but the edges of it are filled with a awesome Averonian history. And B, like, I think a genuine glimpse into, like, Clark Ashtonian philosophy, yeah. at least at this moment that he was writing the story. Uh, but I guess we can save that for the end of the episode. I like that Ambrose 
doesn't fight it. He accepts it, and so he thinks, okay, I'm not going to be able to pray my way back. You know, I'm clearly dealing with black sorcery here. And so she brings him home to her tower, and he's like, mm, probably shouldn't, but you know what? I'm back in time. I don't know anybody else, whatever. And so he totally he goes in and becomes her guest, which is um, probably not advisable for a priest to do, or a young monk. And and once inside, her, her place seems kind of nice. How did Tim, how did you feel about her house? As far as sorceress towers go, I know you have a lot of experience. It's pretty rad. And I like that Azedarak was like her neighbor. Mm-hmm. And more than her neighbor. Yeah, neighbor. Well, yeah, you know. <laughs> so, well, the first thing we learn that I think is interesting once we get in there is like she feeds him and she has this servant there too. Right. But he still has the book, which, as I think we pointed out earlier, is interesting because Zedarak actually doesn't seem to care about this book at all. Right. Like he clearly had an opportunity to take this book from Ambrose and doesn't just sort of left it with him, which I think is kind of cool just because Azedarak is just like, eh, whatever, I've got a thousand book of Ibons. Like you could have that one kid. Yeah, um, he, didn't, he didn't tell Jehan anything about recovering it. Yeah. No. And it gets her really excited. And he knew what was going to happen. You know, he gave him the potion that'll yeah, make him yeah. travel back in time. So he knew the book would go with him. Yeah. It just didn't matter. He doesn't care. So when she sees the book of Ibon, she gets especially excited. This volume is indeed the property of Zederach, who was formerly a neighbor of mine. I knew the scoundrel quite well. In fact, I knew him all too well. Her bosom heaved with an obscure emotion as she paused for a moment. He was the wisest and mightiest of sorcerers. No one ever knew the time and manner of his coming into Averon. He was the master of all enchantments and all demons and likewise a compounder of mighty potions. Among these were certain filters that would send the drinker backward or forward in time. One of them, I believe, was administered to you by Melchir or Jehan Mauvaisoir, and Azedarak himself, together with his manservant, made use of another, perhaps not for the first time, when they went onward from the present age of the Druids into that age of Christian authority to which you belong. There was a blood-red vial for the past and a green for the future. Behold, I possess one of each. A, she totally banged his Yep. So there's that. Although I like that that Smith says her bosom heaved with an obscure emotion. Right. Which is interesting because it's a line that almost seems like it's out of Ambrose's POV. Because I feel like desire is an emotion that would be obscure to him. Right. I don't really know how else to read that line because I don't know what would be obscure about it. Yeah, that's true. Unless maybe she misses him somewhat. Oh, yeah, that's true. Because, I mean, it could it could yeah. be emotion obscure from herself, right. I guess. Because then we don't yeah. we get a little glimpse that he kind of used her and was done with her. Yeah, she was still very into him. But this yeah. was cool in here about a Zedarak where she kind of doesn't even know where he comes from. Like, he just kind of appeared there. Do you think that he came from Hyperborea? Because that's what I think. I don't know. It it would totally make sense that he just jumps forward in time periodically. Uh Or maybe he's from the future, the far future. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, he could be from Zothique. Who knows? Huh, I hadn't thought about that, but yeah. Yeah, I hadn't either. So I think, I mean, I don't know what your guys' assessment of Moriamas is as a character, but I love, like, she has this passage where she says, I'm not sure if she gets asked why she didn't go after him, but she sort of says she's not in the habit of, of chasing after disinterested lovers. Right. I think that's yeah. awesome. Yeah, she's a smart lady. She is, yeah. And she doesn't have any other reason to use it to jump forward in time because it's, she's in a place that's good for her. It's as, a as, sovereign and an excellent place. And also, Jehan was called Melshir back in the past. So I, I looked up Melshir and I didn't find anything with that spelling, but I found Melshior, who was right. the name of one of the Magi, one of the three wise men. I took it as an allusion to that. Right. Uh, so they discuss it, the fact that she has these potions and things, and he says he wants to go back to the present, what is to him the present. And she says, well, if I send you after Azedarak, that would clearly piss him off, which is nice. But maybe you want to stay here for a little while, too. Wink, wink. Nudge, nudge. You're kind of cute. Yeah. We could maybe, like, do some stuff that you don't know about and things. And he, like, tries to put her off and says, I'm a monk. I took these vows. What would the archbishop think? Yada, yada, yada. To which she responds. My dear child, the archbishop will not even be born for at least 650 years. 
and it will be still longer before you are born. And when you return, anything that you will have done during your stay with me will have happened no less than seven centuries ago, which should be long enough to procure the remission of any sin, no matter how often repeated. Like a man who was taken in the toils of some fantastic dream and finds that the dream is not altogether disagreeable, Ambrose yielded to this feminine and irrefutable reasoning. He hardly knew what was to happen, but under the exceptional circumstances indicated by Moriamis, the rigors of monastic discipline might well be relaxed to almost any conceivable degree without entailing spiritual perdition or even a serious breach of vows. A month later, Moriamis and Ambrose were standing beside the Druid altar. I, I, so, in picking the readings, I feel like it's really important that time cut. We should talk about the what gets said before then. But I just love that it's like they have sex for a month. Yeah, like it's amazing. She's a sorceress. Yeah, she has filters. She certainly does, and he is a monk who's like, "Hey, this isn't so bad after all." Yeah, he actually um, starts to dread his his monk life. He like loves yeah. this pagan lifestyle, but he has this weird sense of duty which crops up now. A little like Frederick oh, at Pirates of Penzance. He had a sense of duty before Tim. Let's not pretend that all of a sudden yeah, he has a sense no, of duty. That's true. I just, just want, gets strong I just, enough that you know. I want to be so mad at Ambrose for drinking that potion like a like a <laughs> dummy. Uh, I, I want I, like this whole um, her whole argument for them becoming romantically involved, if you will. I think is interesting because it's the other time where I think you sort of see Clark Ashton Smith's philosophy of life coming out in uh, in the story in the same way that I think it came out at the end of um, Feast of Averone. And he and even if you go on the on the forums, you can there's a comment chain about Clark Ashton Smith politics, which we don't really have a good feel for. Well, we kind of do. I mean, he seems to have been a hardcore nihilist, but a nihilist in the sense that he um, maybe nihilist is the wrong word, but his perspective seems to be that on a long enough time span, it simply doesn't matter because you're going to die anyway. This, to me, I think sort of echoes in this statement where she's saying the amount of time we're talking about here, like what can your actions possibly matter, which I think is really interesting and kind of cool. And she also says, look, I know how to filter these potions. I know how to make it, make it so that we could send you right back to where you left. Right. So it doesn't yeah. matter how much time you spend here. A month passes in orgiastic fashion right. i can only assume yeah absolutely uh, <laughs> they go back to the slab and as tim said like he was really happy being a pagan he doesn't want to go back to being a medieval monk in in uh, 1175 and Moriamas gives him two potions she gives him the green potion to take him back to his own time and then she says look i'm going to give you this escape hatch basically if you get back there and you decide you want to come back here with me just drink this and you can come right back. Which is nice of her. She's a nice lady. Is she now? I still think she's good. I, don't, I, I, I don't, actually, I do like her. She might be vaguely manipulative, but I definitely don't think that she is. She's definitely manipulative. But I'm I, I still think big. on the whole she's good. I think she does it to make a point. I like to think that at the end of the rom-com that is Ambrosius, or Ambrose and Moriamis, she reveals what she's done. And then that's like the third act split where they're like, oh my god, the lovers aren't going to get together. And then he's like, well, it was to teach me the lesson. That about being a time sucks. And, <laughs> so yeah, a lesson about time's malleability and stuff, too. Yeah, that too, that too, yeah. The moonlit glade, the grey altar, and Moriamis all vanished in a swirl of flame and shadow. It seemed to Ambrose that he was soaring endlessly through phantasmagoric gulfs amid the ceaseless shifting and melting of unstable things. At the end, he found himself sitting once more in the Inn of Bon Jouissance. It was daylight, and the room was full of people, among whom he looked in vain for the rubicund face of the innkeeper, or the servants and fellow guests he had previously seen. All were unfamiliar to him. Perceiving the presence of Ambrose, the people began to eye him with open curiosity and wonderment. A tall man with dolorous eyes and lantern jaw came hastily forward and bowed before him with an air that was half servile, but full of a prying impertinence. "'What do you wish?' he asked. "'Is this the inn of Bon Jouissance?' The innkeeper stared at Ambrose. "'Nay, it is the inn of Haute Espérance, of which I have been the taverner these thirty years. 
It was called the Inn of Bondressant in my father's time. Scheming witch. Well, you'd... Hey, spoiler. (laughs) I'm just saying, how did he end up? He's like, I'll configure the potion for you. You'll end up exactly on your own time. (laughs) Teehee. Although maybe she's just really bad at what she does. She was probably... Yeah, I mean, the story doesn't tell you the ending until the ending, but now we all know, so I'm out of here. She was pr- <laughs> When she was mixing the potion, she was probably, like, leaning over, and he was too busy looking at her cleavage. So she was... Able- no, because if there's one thing we know about Ambrose, he pays attention to what goes in his drink. He just isn't doing it. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. And so he... Well, he tries to figure out if he can fulfill his mission. Wait, wait. Before we go into that, what do, what do these in names mean? Good justice um, and uh, you no know, good justice. Bon justice, good happiness. Oh, okay, and um, high hopes, haute oh. espérance. So, can we tie that into Ambrose's journey? This might not especially. They're just really friendly in name. Okay, forget it then. I still <laughs> Would you like to try to? Yes, I think when he first goes into the inn of good <laughs> happiness, he gets transported back into time where he has this amazing experience. And then when he goes into the future, he has high hopes of being a hero. And then we'll see what happens. Then what happens? He's a very dutiful sort of guy. So, okay, he's 30 years in the future. Well, what about Clement, the archbishop? I've got this thing for him. He's got the Book of Ivan with him. They say, oh, yeah, he, um, he, he, he died. Well... He could still keep going with his mission, so he wonders, well, what about Azedarak? Because he could, I guess he could go to the current archbishop and say, I've been on this really long mission, and there was some sorcery involved, but I came back. Here's the proof, and get Azedarak uh, burned for sorcery or something. But what does he find out about Azedarak when he's like, well, what about the Bishop of Zim? What about Azedarak? The man responds, you mean Saint Azedarak, no doubt. He outlived Clement, but nevertheless he has been dead and duly canonized for 32 years. Some say that he did not die, but was transported to heaven alive, and that his body was never buried in the great mausoleum reared for him at Zim, but that is probably a mere legend. And that's the evil dead moment of this story. I love that moment. Yeah, it's awesome. It's great. Not only did he escape into the past or the future, but he did in such a manner that people believe that he was like his whole body was taken right. into heaven which is an awesome legend to have and they built this great mausoleum and that, he's canonized yeah and he's canonized it's amazing I, and i think that is why it's called the holiness of a zeta right. is the idea that there's this saint and now we're just learning his dark history yeah uh and he also learns uh, uh that the year that he's actually in is of course not 1175 it's 1230 so it is 45 years after he originally left bon Jossance. And just for perspective's sake, it's 50 years before a certain colossus will rage across the countryside, which is I kind of fun. It's 55 years. Well, 50 rough years. 50 okay. Rough years. <laughs> I mean, details matter, I guess, if you're into that kind of thing. Yeah. So then they're, they're like, you <laughs> our know listeners what? are. We've, <laughs> we've heard um, the, the innkeepers like, oh, you know what? I've heard a, a legend about a monk who came here when my father was the innkeeper and disappeared. And then everyone starts looking at him all askew. And then he decides, oh, that's it, I'm going back. But I love that. I think the exact line is, fuck this, no. I'm out of here. Wait, but I love why he, like one of the reasons he leaves is um, because he was seized by an all-consuming desire to escape from the weird embarrassment and wilderment of his present position. So he's feeling a little he's shameful. Got, he's got sad. Yeah. He's got social anxiety disorder yeah. and everybody's looking at him. So he chugs the red potion and boom. He was back in the forest glade by the gigantic altar. Moriamas was beside him again, lovely and warm and breathing. And the moon was still rising above the pine tops. It seemed that no more than a few moments could have elapsed since he had said farewell to the beloved Enchantress. I thought you might return, said Morianus, and I waited a little while. Ambrose told her of the singular mishap that attended his journey in time. Morianus nodded gravely. The green filter was more potent than I had supposed, she remarked. It is fortunate, though, that the red filter was equivalently strong and could bring you back to me through all those added years. You will have to remain with me now, for I possessed only two vials. I hope you are not sorry. 
Ambrose proceeded to prove, in a somewhat unmonastic manner, that her hope was fully justified. Neither then nor at any other time did Morianus tell him that she herself had strengthened slightly and equally the two filters by means of the private formula which she had also stolen from Azedarach. And that's the end. I still don't think she's bad. I mean, she is deceptive, certainly. Mm-hmm. But we know, because of the uh, omniscient narrative of the story, that uh, he wanted to come back. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe, you know, it's for the best. She was, she was manipulative, but it was for, the be- for Ambrose's best interests. I really do think it was for the best. I, um, and I think maybe giving him a chance... She may have erased his feeling of guilt by doing this, because if she yeah. kept him for forever, it would have made him feel incredibly guilty, even if he'd gone back as an old man. Yeah, great. So now everybody's happy, except for the poor people of Averone, who have canonized a devil worshiper. Right, but, I mean, yes, but. But. We, despite his evilness, really, what does a Zedarek do in this story, aside from from his perspective, be honest about the fact that he's worshiping a devil and send a monk on a sex journey. (laughs) I'm kind of with Phil on this one, although I wasn't going to say about the sex journey part, but yeah, he, he, he owns up to what he does. He's not, and I don't see him as being any more predatory on the people of Averon than anybody else. And we've already learned from the other Averon stories that piety gets you nowhere in Averon. Yeah. So it's not like, oh, great, some sort of star spawn beast is going to arrive and they'll be defenseless. Nope, they might actually have a better shot with a Zidarak if he's interested in protecting his own people. Of course, he might just jump forward in time, but no harm, no foul. So uh, I guess I have a bunch of notes at the end of the story, but I want to hear um, Tim's overall assessment of the story. Uh, like, I feel like we should take a global perspective on wh- how we all feel about this one. Okay. I feel like there's a lot of cool stuff in this story. There's a lot of really good ideas and the time traveling potions and the, the going back to druidic Averone and having this dude who is masquerading as a bishop, but is really like this super powerful time traveling transgalactic entity worshiper is awesome, but nothing happens in this story. There's no real threat. Zedarak becomes a saint. He doesn't really harm anybody, we suppose. There's no real tension in this story. There's just, it's just kind of a bunch of little mishaps and then everybody's like, oh, okay. We're going to live in the past and have sex. Okay, I'm going to be a a saint now and go fight myself in the future, Uh, which we'll find out in the other one. But I just, Ambrose is a frustrating quote-unquote hero. He knows there are bad things going on, but he just can't seem to stop them for whatever reason. I don't know. I feel like it's not a complete story. It's a bunch of good ideas all kind of jammed into each other. I feel like maybe it's more of, it feels more like history than a a novel type thing. It's the sort of thing that does happen and you see a bunch of humans failing at things. So Jehan almost fails at getting Ambrose to drink it. Ambrose fails at being smart. They attempted to take down a satanic prelate. And then through a series of human failings and sorceries and through people's own feelings, because obviously if Ambrose had really, really, really wanted to go to the future and been really desperate for it, Moriamas might have let him go and such. Um, how, how things just go completely awry and so the evil person doesn't get punished, but in the big picture is that, is it a terribly bad thing? So again, more like more like history than like a, a story qua story. Right. Yeah, I mean, my take on the story is that it is anti-heroic. I think by design, which is to say that it's a story like for exactly the reasons that Tim is laying out, like there isn't any tension in the story and Ambrose has what should be a heroic mission, but ultimately what he learns is that it's better to live your life in a kind of um, paganistic gray moral area where you're having a good time than it is to like chase down a satanic priest who may or may not have hurt anybody. And that's what I think is interesting about the story is that it, it's like, it almost reads to me like a parody of 
heroic fiction because you have Ambrose as this kind of like bumbling, not even bumbling, but like he's just a dude who's trying to get some, like he has a quest, but it gets so derailed yeah. and he ends up not, he ends up learning that it doesn't matter at mm-hmm. all, at all. Um, and the best thing for him is to go back in time and basically have a good time, which, which is like kind of awesome. And like, I think a pretty good tweak on the um, generally speaking, pretty simplistic morality of heroic fiction, if you will. So that's like, that's why I like, I, I agree with him that it's a hugely flawed story on many levels, but I think in terms of like a philosophy of Clark Ashton Smith, there's a lot in this story that is about what he was about, right. you know? And I agree. And I, ju- I kind of wish he would have played up one end more than the other instead of it just being so neutral all the way through. You know, there's no true comedic moments. There's stuff that could, that we can kind of force into being comedic moments. There's some stuff that we kind of force to be moments of tension, but ultimately it just stays in neutral. The one really comedic moment I found in this was when Moriamis is supposed to be, uh, when she sees the Book of Ivan, it's as though she were stung by a wild bee. And I found myself sitting there thinking, is that much different from being stung by a tame one? Right, <laughs> all those tame bees in Avarone. So Smith said of the tale that it was more piquant than weird, but I like to do something in lighter vein occasionally, quote unquote. So I mean, he seems to have known that he wasn't doing anything uh, that was going to change the world with the story. But I, I think the appeal in the story really is in the, I guess to use a somewhat obscure metaphor, like the corners of the story and yeah. not in the story itself. Yeah, I, um, I completely agree. It's hard to completely yeah. hate it because there's a lot of good stuff in there. But I feel, you know, as a story, it's not a story. So should we talk about uh, Smith's notes for the sequel? Because yes. the sequel sounds like it was an awesome story. The sequel Definitely. sounds as metal as an Averroan <laughs> story can get. He never wrote the story. Um, it was going to be entitled The Doom of Azedarach. The notes read as follows. Azedarach, sorcerer bishop of Zim, supposedly dying in the odor of sanctity, in reality, it transports himself to an other-dimensional world which represents an alternative development of the Earth sphere from the same primal causes and origins. In this world, many peculiar laws and conditions prevail, together with distorted resemblances to Earth. Zedarak finds himself in a curiously topsy-turvy Averone, whose people are only vaguely human. He meets a being who is the otherworld alternative of himself, and a weird duel ensues between the two, each using all his resources of wizardry and necromancy. In the end, Azedarak, being out of his normal element, loses and is absorbed like a shadow by the other. Awesome. Yeah. I love it. That's, um, <laughs> that's really incredible. There's so much in there. That's amazing. Like, yeah. a topsy-turvy Averone where people are barely human? What, I, <laughs> what are you talking about? I, was, um, just, I, I didn't think of that until now, until you were just reading it. But could this have been like his um, original conception for Zafik? Possibly. Yeah. I mean, we have to look at the dates as to when he started to talk about it. So Thiek, right. I think in one of the essays that we have access to, they, they sort of, they track his first note of a place called Zothique. But yeah, but it's, that's awesome. uh, Wizard duels. it's totally awesome. And just this, like, these are two words that I do not see hyphenated together often enough. Sorcerer Bishop. <laughs> like, that's awesome. I wish that I knew a Sorcerer Bishop. I think this is our first story that explicitly ties into the, the actual Cthulhu mythos. A little bit. Not too I mean, in, in that it has Dagon and Yangsothot. In that, it, I mean, in that it has the name and Shabnigurath. Oh yeah, it's true. There's a, there's definitely a reference to Shabnigurath. In which one? In this, uh, at the beginning, like the very by the first oh, yeah, yeah. with a thousand I, years. I, I, I thought you meant. Uh, I thought you meant in uh, a previous story. Oh no. no. Oh uh, no, no. Yeah, I I can't remember any where he intentionally ties in. Yeah. Uh, so much from other from the other writers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that's kind of fun. I want to talk about why Ambrose was riding the white donkey. Why? Yeah, why was he riding a white donkey, Ruth? Well, I don't know about the white bit, mm-hmm. but there's certain traditions that have happened um, throughout the church in history that because Jesus rode in on Palm Sunday on the back of a donkey, that it would be improper for a clergyman to ride on something nicer. Now, of course, it's kind of thrown out all over the place, but there's still, in some ways, certain traditions that you find in some stories and in some histories where, in fact, they were all riding on donkeys. Right. Now, Ambrose, our 
Not Jesus. Yeah, as far. Not even close. <laughs> someone as far from a messiah as you can get. Zedarak is the messiah in this story. Yes, he is. He might as well be. Um, he does get transported to heaven. And he does get described as an antichrist. So it's, uh, it's something. Yep. That was Holiness of Zedarak. I think it's essential, essential Averonian reading. It is. It is essential Averonian reading. It's not terribly long. No. It's short. I would also like to thank Kevin McLeod. He's the guy who I basically steal all the music for the show from. Well, I don't steal it because he offers it royalty-free. His website is incompetech.com, and that's I-N-C-O-M-P-E-T-E-C-H.com. And basically any kind of music I'm looking for, he's got on the site, so... It's been a real help. He's really been kind of the soundtrack of Averone. So I just wanted to give a shout out. And if any of you out there need music for role-playing games or podcasts, you know, check them out. Next time around, we're going to be talking about the disinterment of Venus, which takes us back to the Abbey of Paragon and uh, tells us about something that's lurking underneath. Have you ever stroked China Melville's thigh? <laughs> is it su- is it as supple as I think? I think it's hard, like a rock. <laughs> I, I would think it would be toned and muscular. Of course. <laughs> and like covered in hammers and sickles. <laughs> right, because it's the people's thigh. 